Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Scripture reading this morning will be Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find Luke 20, 41 on page 880. You may remember that in the two previous passages... Jesus' enemies came at him with with questions, questions they hoped would destroy him. In this passage, Jesus is going to turn the tables. He is going to go after his enemies with a question of his own. However, his question is not designed to destroy. But on the contrary, Jesus' question is a challenge. Is it a challenge for His enemies and for us this morning to see Him for who He is? Is it a challenge for us to see Him as David's greater Son? Let us read it together. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 41. This is the very Word of God. But they said to them, or but He said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's Son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the reading of his word and the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we do come before you humbly, asking for your grace, asking for your Blessing, Father, I pray that you would be with me as I preach these words, that, that my words would be faithful and true, and that they would communicate the, the grace of your gospel. And I pray that you would be with each one here this morning, Father, that you would humble their hearts and give them ears to hear, that they might receive your truth, be nourished and transformed by it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On Friday morning, I received a call from... Larry. Earlier that morning, Larry had received a call from Ken Tarpley's son. As you just heard Scott say in the the prayer, Ken had died the previous day, and his son was calling Larry to get my number to see if I would be able to, to do the funeral. As I took Larry's call, as I heard the news, it was yet another reminder But this world is not the way it is supposed to be. We live in a world that has been subjected to futility. We live in a world that is under God's curse. A world that is ravaged by sin and death. And the reminders are everywhere. Just this week we have heard about yet another mass shooting at a high school. This time in rural Kentucky. We've heard about another terrorist attack in Afghanistan that has killed or wounded hundreds. And we have heard the testimony of some 150 women who were systematically abused by their doctor over the course of decades. One reminder after another. And the reminders are not only out there In this very congregation, this small group of people, we, we have those who, whose struggle with sin is so intense 
but they're not sure they can endure it even for one more day. The idea of being buffeted by these temptations for the rest of their life is more than they can comprehend. There are those who who have children who have walked away from the faith and their hearts break. There are those whose marriages are broken seemingly beyond repair. There are those who who work in miserable conditions and others who simply do not have a job. And there are some who are struggling with health issues or with the health issues of those they love. And the list could go on. I am sure that each one of you could add your own issues to the list that grows ever longer. We know from, from experience This world is not the way it is supposed to be. There is a reason that Paul called this present age evil. There's a reason that that Paul said that this life is filled with groaning. And I want to suggest to you this morning that in such an age, it is vital that we as the people of God learn to meditate upon the truths of His Word. This is this is not the meditation of Eastern mysticism. I know that that word puts some people off. This is this is not emptying your mind to find peace within, but rather it is filling your mind with the truths of Scripture. It is doing what the psalmist says: "Blessed is the man who meditates upon God's law day and night." Christian meditation is not emptying your mind, but but filling it with the truths of of Scripture. And we do this by by going over those truths that we know, those truths that are so familiar again and again and again, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. We we repeat to ourselves the truth. In fact, the the word that David uses in Psalm 1, though the word for meditation is a word that that has the the connotations of of murmuring or, or mumbling. It is speaking to yourself. It is saying to yourself what you know again and again and again. You've probably done some Something like this, if you ever had to walk through a dark alley at night, you remind yourself of what you know. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. You, you repeat to yourself what you know that you might believe it so that it might take root in your heart and so that you might begin to walk in the truth of what you have believed. That's what we must do as believers who live in an age that is marked by sin and death. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this passage before us contains two truths. Two truths about who Jesus is that we must learn to to plant deeply in our hearts. The first truth I want you to see this morning is simply this. I want you to see that Jesus is a willing Savior. And really, it's been a point in, in the two previous passages as, as well. You remember, in those two passages, Jesus' enemies came at Him with questions. They, they came at Him with questions designed to destroy Him. First, the, the scribes and the priests asked Him a question about, about taxes. And they, and they thought that they had trapped Him. They thought that no matter how He answered, Jesus would be destroyed if He said He was in favor of paying taxes. But everyone would know that he wasn't a true king. For what true king would allow his subjects to pay taxes to his rival? But if he said that he was against paying taxes, then he would be shown not to be a king because Rome would come at him with all their military might and put an end to his little movement. Either way, Jesus lost and they won. Or so they thought. 
Next, of course, the Sadducees came after Jesus. They, they came at him with a question about the, the resurrection. And again, they thought they had Jesus trapped. They thought their question exposed the utter foolishness of, of believing in the resurrection. And if they could discredit the resurrection, then they could discredit Jesus. For the resurrection was at the heart of His gospel. It was at the heart of everything that He taught. But of course, in neither case was Jesus trapped. Rather, in, in both cases, Jesus' answer amazed the crowds and silenced His opponents. We read in verse 26, And they were not able to catch Him in what He said, but marveling at His answers, they became silent. Jesus' answer amazed them. It, it, it silenced them. We, we read something similar in verses 49 and, uh, 39 and 40. They were told that the scribes answered Him, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask Him any questions. Again, their mouths were stopped. And we see much the same thing play out here in the verses before us this morning. Verses 41 through 44. Twice Jesus has answered their questions and silenced His opponents. Now He asks a question of His own. He, he asks a question about the Messiah. Whose son is He? He asks, how can they say that the Messiah is David's son when David calls Him Lord? And we'll look at that question a little more closely in a few minutes, moments, but for now I simply want you to notice that they can make no reply. They, they have no answer. Matthew says this explicitly in his version of this story. He says it, he says, and no one was able to answer him a word. Luke makes the same point, not by saying it explicitly, but by recording no response. They have nothing to say in response to Jesus Question. They, they cannot answer. At the end of the exchange, Jesus' enemies are silenced. Their mouths are stopped. And it's important for us to see this because Jesus is showing us that He is in control of the situation. He is the one in charge. He is the one running the show. His enemies are not. And it's important for us to see this because before the end of the week, before this week is up, Jesus' enemies will seemingly get their way. Before the end of the week, Jesus will be betrayed by one of His own disciples, betrayed with a kiss. He will be arrested and handed over to the Jewish authorities who will condemn Him and then hand Him over to the Roman authorities that He might be crucified. And He will be crucified. He will die upon a cross and He will be laid in a tomb. All that will transpire within this week. It appears that... The enemies are going to get their way, that they are going to accomplish their purpose. It appears that, that Jesus will, in fact, be destroyed. And so Luke wants us to see that all that is about to transpire is not the victory of Jesus' enemies as it appears. Luke, is, he wants us to see that, that Jesus is not outsmarted. He is not outmaneuvered. He is not otherwise overcome by His Opponents, but rather he retains his sovereign control right to the very end. His enemies try, but they fail to trap him. In the end, Jesus' life is not taken from him. But rather, he lays it down 
even as He came to do. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, I do not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It's why I came. I I came to give my life. I I came to, to lay it down. To lay it down for my people. And that is exactly what we are going to see Him do. And so Jesus is in control. Jesus is is running the show. Things are happening according to His plan. Things are unfolding according to His will. The, The outcome is not the will of His enemies, but it is the execution of His own divine plan. And that means that His death is voluntary. He gives it freely. Jesus' sacrifice for for sinners is not a begrudging or reluctant act. Yes, it was hard. We, We see this in the garden, do we not? He prays to His Father, Father, if there is any way, if there is any way forward that doesn't require me to drink this cup, please take it from me. It was a painful thing. It was an even overcoming thing for Him to drink the cup of His Father's wrath. It was hard, beyond our imagination even. But it was willing, even joyful. He gave His life that those who had been given to Him by His Father might live. He gave His life as the sacrifice for sins, that whosoever believes in Him might not perish, but have eternal life. This is one of those truths that we know. John 3.16 is probably one of the first verses that you ever memorized. But I want to suggest to you this morning that this is one of those truths that we need to return to again and again and again. This is one of those truths upon which we need to meditate. It's one of those truths that we need to mumble to ourselves day and night. Because it is in this truth that we find our comfort. Think for a moment about what comfort this truth speaks to your soul when you're struggling with sin. And we all struggle. We all struggle. You, you try to, to keep it hidden. You may not want to admit it to, to others, but you, you struggle. You, you struggle with sin. We, we struggle with different sins, but we all struggle. You, you may struggle with your temper. You, you may struggle with lust. You may struggle with greed. You, you may struggle with, with laziness or apathy. Your, your struggles are, are your own. You know the sins that so easily beset you. You know the sins that so easily entangle you, keeping you from running well the race that is set before you. And we have all reached that point where we begin to wonder, how much more can Jesus take? How much longer will He put up with me? How much longer will He allow me to to continue in His his grace if I am such a sinner, if I continue to, to fail, if I continue to lose my temper, if I continue not to control my tongue, if I continue to respond with, with malice, if I continue to, to lust... How long will He put up with me? You've been there. You you know those thoughts. And here's what I want you to see. That Jesus is not a reluctant Savior. He knew you before the foundations of the world. He knows your sin better than you do. He knows its full depth in ways that, that you have only begun to comprehend. And yet, in love... 
He came to lay down His life that you might have life in Him. Jesus will not grow weary of you. He will not give up on you. Where your sin abounds, His grace superabounds. If you reject Him, if you reject His forgiveness, if you reject His, His grace, He will weep over you. But if you turn to Him in faith, if you turn to Him in humble repentance, if you turn to Him confessing your sins, He will never send you away. He will receive you. He says, come, come to me, find rest. He is a willing Savior. And we need that truth because we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we need to preach these truths to ourselves again and again and again. I said it in Sunday school this morning. Sometimes we we keep from coming to the Lord's table because we think we are unworthy. How foolish can we be? Of course you are unworthy. It's why you need to come to the table. The only sin that can keep you from coming to the table is unrepentance. If you are repentant, if you are humbled, if you are confessing your sins, come and feast upon your Savior, for He gave His body for you. Come to a willing Savior. But of course, it helps us not only when we're struggling with our sin, it helps us when we're just going through the difficulties of these lives. Sometimes the difficulties of these lives are caused by our sins. Sometimes they, they are caused by just the brokenness of this world that we live in. We, we go through hard things. We experience trials. And in the midst of those trials, we can sometimes wonder if God is still for us, if Jesus still loves us. And again, at such moments, in the midst of such trials, in the midst of such difficult circumstances, we need to return to these verses. We need to return to see Jesus as a willing Savior. He has not forgotten us. We can trust that whatever it is He is asking us to go through, He is calling us to go through it in love. Yes, it may be hard. Yes, it may be painful. But it is not for our destruction. He is working for our good, even in the trial. That's why James says, count it all joy. Not because the trial itself is pleasant, not because it is easy, but because it is an instrument in our loving Savior's hands. And He's using it for our good. But that's not easy to believe in the the pain of the moment. And so we need to meditate. We need to return. We need to preach these truths to ourselves again and again and again. And of course, the the list could go on. It's a a truth that helps us when we're anxious. Anxiety is simply anticipating trials that haven't yet come. And, And when we're anxious about what might happen, we need to remember... We need to remember that Jesus is a willing Savior. When we're discontent with our circumstances, when we wonder how He allowed us to end up where we are, again, we we need to go and remember that He is a willing Savior, that, that He gave His life for us. How will He not also graciously give us all good things? Whatever we are experiencing, wherever we find ourselves, He is at work for our blessing. These are truths we are only able to believe as we see that He is a willing Savior. But of course, He's not only a willing Savior. The second thing we see in this passage that is also a greater Savior. Of course, you're asking greater than, than what? 
Greater is a, a comparison. What is He greater than? And, and Jesus' point in these verses is that He is greater than the Savior the people were expecting. He's, he's greater even than the Savior that they were hoping for. They were hoping for, for the second coming of David. They were hoping for another king like David who would set them free from, from Rome and establish again on earth the, the kingdom of, of God. Even as it was under David's reign. And Jesus says, no. The salvation I have in store for my people is greater than that, for I am greater than He. It's the point of the question that Jesus is asking. He says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said "Sit uh, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now the first thing we need to understand here is that Jesus is not challenging the idea that, that Christ is David's son. He asks, how can they say that? But he's, he's not asking that as if to suggest that it weren't true. Everyone understands that the Christ is David's son. That was common knowledge. It was confessed throughout the Scriptures. The Christ is the, the, the root that comes up from the stump of Jesse, David's father. He, he is the one who will sit upon David's throne forever. And we, we see that this was accepted in, in Jesus' day by the way that people address Him. They come to Him and they say, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Paul himself continues to confess this in the early church when he, when he writes that, that Jesus, the Christ, was the Son of David according to the flesh. Everyone understood that the Messiah was to be David's Son. That's not what Jesus is questioning. That's not what Jesus is, is challenging. But rather, Jesus is, is challenging His enemies and challenging those in the crowds to carefully consider the implications of Christ being David's Lord. They knew that He was His Son, but what does it mean to say that He is His Lord? And clearly that is the case, as we see here in Psalm 110, the, the psalm that Jesus is quoting. Look again at the verses. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, in English, we have the word Lord repeated, and we have the same thing in the, the Greek of Luke's Gospel. It is Lord, and it is Lord. But when you go back to Psalm 10, 110, and when you go back to the Hebrew that Psalm 110 was written, and you see that there are two words for Lord. The first word, the, the word Lord, that if you look at your uh, Old Testament, you'll see written in all capitals. That is not the word Lord, actually, but that is the, Lord, the Lord's name. That is Yahweh. The reason that it gets translated as Lord is because the Jews were careful never to speak the name of God. And so whenever they saw the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament, they would write in the margin the name Adonai or the name Lord. And so as we get into the New Testament and we, we have it translated into Greek, we, we have Lord. But it is Yahweh. And so Yahweh is speaking. And who is Yahweh speaking to? He is speaking to one whom David calls my Lord. And there is the traditional word for Lord. There is my Adonai, the one who is my master, the one who is my king. And so Yahweh is speaking to David's Lord. And he is saying to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the promise is that the one who is David's Lord will be the king who will reign with justice and peace forever. He is the priest in the order of Melchizedek whose intercession will be eternal. It is clear that in Psalm 110, Yahweh is speaking to the Messiah. 
And so David calls the Messiah, the one whom everyone knew was his son. David calls the Messiah, my Lord. And that doesn't strike us as a real problem, but, but for a first century Jew, that was almost unthinkable. How is it possible that, that any father, much less David, the king of kings as they saw it, how is it possible that, that David would call one of his sons, even one of his great-grandsons, my Lord? Fathers didn't do such a thing. Fathers were honored by their sons. They didn't give such honor to their sons. And so Jesus asks, how is it possible? What's the point? Because I said the point is simply this, that David's son is not like any other son. The Messiah is not just any son, but the Messiah, the Christ, is David's greater son. See, this isn't just a random question. This isn't, this isn't just a question designed to, to stump Jesus' enemies. This isn't just a, a question designed to, to prove that He knows the Bible better than they do, or that He can interpret it more creatively. That's not what's going on here. But rather, Jesus is asking a question that is a direct challenge to their vision of the Messiah. It's a direct challenge to their understanding of salvation. Jesus is saying, your understanding of the Messiah and the salvation that you hope for through Him, your vision is far too small. Yes, the Messiah will be David's son, but He will be David's greater son. And this is another one of those truths that we need to meditate upon. For think about what it means for Jesus to claim to be greater than David. You heard it in our call to worship this morning. In a call to worship, we were warned not to put our trust in princes. Don't put your trust in princes. Don't, don't look for salvation for man. Why? Because their power is limited. And their purposes inevitably fail. This is true of all kings, even good kings like David. Even a king like David cannot give his people a perfect and lasting peace. David's kingdom was the, the apex of the history of Israel. And yet, even in David's kingdom, there were, there were skirmishes here and there. Even in David's kingdom, the peace was not perfect. And of course, as we know, the peace did not last. David's grandson, Rehoboam, would sit upon a divided throne as ten of the tribes would be ripped away from him. And the rest of the history of Israel would, would be a history of turmoil until finally the Assyrians would come and wipe out the ten northern tribes and the Babylonians would, would come and take the, the southern tribes into captivity. An exile that, that many Jews in Jesus' day thought of as still continuing. They were, they were not under the Babylonians anymore, but, but their masters had just traded from, from one king to another. Babylon had been replaced by Persia, Persia by Greece, Greece by Rome, but they were still basically subjects of a greater king. And so their peace and their prosperity was not what they had hoped for. David's kingdom did not last. That's true of every human king. That's true of every human Savior. There is no human king. There is no human Savior that can give us the salvation that we need, the salvation that our hearts long for. But Jesus says, I'm a greater king. I am greater than David. 
And the peace that I will give you will be greater than the peace of David's reign. It will be a true peace. It will be a lasting peace. And it is this hope, this hope of true and lasting peace through our greater King Jesus that allows us to endure the trials and the tribulations of this life, of of life in this fallen world. Think of what Paul says. The, The trials and the tribulations of this life are slight and momentary compared to the glory that is being prepared for us. Because we have a King who is bringing a true and lasting peace. A peace that will last forever. And there is nothing that any power in this age, that any power in this world, whether material or or, or spiritual, there is nothing that any power can do to thwart God's purposes to bring that peace to His people. And that is our hope, because we have a greater King. But there's more to Jesus' supremacy than just this. It's, It's not just that He brings peace to His people. He also brings to them a greater prosperity. That's a word that we're a little wary of these days because there are those out there who are known as prosperity preachers. They they preach a prosperity gospel. They say that if you just have enough faith in God that you can sort of manipulate Him into giving you what you want in this life. That that you can manipulate Him into giving you the the, the Cadillac or the house or the the lifestyle that your heart desires. And and you need to hear us say they are false teachers and the, the gospel they preach is a lie. But you also need to hear us say that there is a true prosperity gospel. There is a a true prosperity gospel. Jesus' disciples, Jesus' followers, those who through Him are children of God, we are heirs of an inheritance that is beyond imagination. What we have coming is not less than what the false teachers promised, but more, so much more. Do you remember Jesus' teaching about treasure? Do you remember what He he said to His disciples? He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. It is a, a wasted enterprise. He says, why? Because those treasures can perish. Malls and and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Those those treasures are fleeting. And so what does Jesus say? Does He say, do not set your heart on treasure, do kill your desire, become an Eastern mystic? Not at all. But rather He calls on His people to set their hearts on a greater treasure. To set their hearts on the treasures of heaven. He doesn't call on us to kill our desires, but to aim our desires higher. To to long for the prosperity of the coming kingdom of God. God's will for you is your good. His will for you is your your blessing. He created you to, to participate fully in His joy. And we are now called as the people of God to remember that we have a Savior who is greater than David, who will provide for us a prosperity greater than anything David was able to give to his people. And we must meditate upon these truths. We must return to them again and again. We must remember that because Jesus is David's greater son, 
Because Jesus is David's Lord. His kingdom is better. And His kingdom is eternal. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled by the ravages of sin. This is the truth that allowed Moses to to grow up in the house of Pharaoh, but at the age of 40 to walk away. And to say that he would count reproach for the sake of Christ, greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking forward to the reward of his greater king. He knew a king greater than Pharaoh. He knew treasures greater than what Pharaoh could offer. And we now serve that same greater King. And we must return to it again and again to remember, to ground ourselves in the hope of glory that is ours through Christ. So what have we seen? We've seen that that Jesus is a willing Savior. He he longs to save us. He comes willingly to, to set down His life that we might live. And the life He calls us to is greater than anything that we might ask or imagine. What He calls us to is life in a coming kingdom untouched by sin. A kingdom where His kingdom, where His blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is the Savior we serve. A willing Savior. A greater Savior. And Jesus wants us to know it. He wants us to see it. That we might rest in Him. That we might trust Him. Even in the midst of trial. Maybe especially in the midst of trial. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know exactly what you are going through this morning. I don't know what things have caused you to groan this past week. But whatever it is, I can say this with confidence. Set your eyes on Jesus. For He is David's greater Son. And because He is, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen.